Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling, and coming up on today's episode, you know we had a few interviews lined up for this past week. Going to use one of them for this week's podcast, but both of them postponed to next week, so You'll get those next week, but we have the next best thing in-house as Leighton rejoins the show for today's rundown. It was a week chock full of retail news as we'll talk about off-price. We'll also discuss footwear and specifically things going on at Foot Locker that might see a downturn for them in the back half of the year. We'll look ahead to what was one of America's favorite retailers 50 years ago, now not so much and an online pure play retailer struggling to maintain profitability. A quick reminder that you can, of course, rate us if you enjoy the show on any listening platform. Those ratings help others to find us in those great big algorithms that the likes of Spotify and Apple have. Additionally, you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Twitter and and Instagram. So many retail news stories to choose from. Big week for retail earnings in specific. Bath and Body Works, Carter's, Lowe's, Home Depot, others posting earnings beats. But we're going to start with a rare earnings miss from an off-price retailer as TJX reported earnings for their latest quarter on Wednesday last week. And this quarter, which was their fiscal fourth quarter of 2022, so it ended January 29th, 2022, gave them a rare miss on analyst estimates. And Leighton, the consensus guess for TJX was earnings of $0.90 cents per share. They were still profitable, but earnings per share of just $0.78 cents here. When discussing off-price recently, we've been focused on deal flow as off-price retail scene in the U.S. continues to boom. As recently as the end of 2021, leadership at Burlington, for example, forecasted strong deal flow as a result of full-price retailers seeing supply chain woes resulting in out-of-season merchandise finding their way to off-pricers. However, one certainly wonders if continued saturation of off-price retail in the U.S. with additional locations will eventually eat away at sales and margin at the largest players. Despite the miss on earnings, TJX here still reported strong sales numbers. As most clothing retailers have done recently, TJX reported comps in a couple different ways in one and two year formats. They also kept comps to open only stores since various reasons surrounding the pandemic there were scattered for closures in late 2020 and 2021 both. So you're going to get one year and two year stacks. Stores were closed for about 13% of their fiscal 2021 fourth quarter, which was in their accounting terms late 2020 due to COVID restrictions. Therefore, their comps over the last year were quite robust. We found it more instructive to look at two-year comps and TJX saw a definite surge upward there. Compared to pre-pandemic comps, TJX posted an enterprise-wide US comp increase of 13%. Again, comparing stores that were open on both occasions. So this disqualifies stores open since the fourth quarter of fiscal 2020 and stores closed due to the pandemic restrictions of the fourth quarter of fiscal 2022. Not only did they post comp sales gains, but their internal metrics indicate that they gained market share as well, Trent, especially in the US where stores were open more than say in Canada or Australia. Breaking this down by brand, Marmax posted a 10% comp jump on a two-year stack basis 
Marmax, by the way, includes TJ Maxx, Marshalls, and now Sierra is lumped in with them as well. Home Goods, meanwhile, once again posted excellent numbers with a jump of around 22% on a two-year basis. This came despite some analysts warning that durable goods, including home furnishings, which of course Home Goods has, may tail off starting in late 2021. By the way, these two-year open-only comps do not include the e-commerce sites for their brands, which has become a rarity in the retail landscape. In-store ticket and traffic were both up in the U.S., although major gains came from basket size. This capped off a fiscal year that saw TJX as a company post 15% comp increases across the board, 17% in the U.S. alone. Overall net sales were up 14% on a two-year basis, up to around $13.9 billion in this fourth quarter trend. And as expected, it was a significant year-over-year leap. That's up over 25% versus last year, owing to the greater number of closures that they saw last year company-wide. Now, those sales numbers are both domestic and international, so that's why you see comps up 17% in the U.S., but overall net sales up just 14% on a two-year basis as you look at the entirety of the fourth quarter. Now, regarding the miss versus analyst expectations on the bottom line, seems to have largely been chalked up to supply chain costs. In fact, when you take out supply chain impacts, they were able to increase merchandise markup across the board as company deal flow remained strong. Leighton mentioned on Burlington's earnings call most recently, they talked about their deal flow. They're seeing almost record numbers in terms of available merchandise. And as these off-pricers get larger, they can strike larger deals, a lower price per unit, and they're able then to ensure that their margins are pretty solid. So one of the things they were able to do is effectively leverage their scale, also ensuring that the price per item to the customer remained fairly low in an inflationary atmosphere despite keeping that spread on price. Also, they were able to leverage or deleverage rather their occupancy costs as a result of their higher per location sales this year versus last year or even 2019. So these are things that helped them on the margin front, but their final merchandise margin was lower this year versus previous years due to a 2.8% increase in freight expense. They had planned for some increase in freight expense, but this came in actually above their planned levels. Additionally, they saw a 1.6% reduction in margin due to work to expand their distribution capacity. They kind of work to make sure that these new stores that they are continually opening year after year remain properly stocked. And then also there are wage increases accompanying that, especially at the D.C. level. Finally, COVID costs are still negatively impacting margins for retailers and for TJ Maxx negatively impacted their margin by half a percent. All of this added up to gross margin trailing their Q4 gross margin from two years ago, 27.1% this year versus 28.4% a couple of years ago. SG&A costs were up slightly as well just by a half a percentage point there. Still, it's important to note that their overall pre-tax profit margin on an adjusted basis was still 9.6% for the entirety of their 2022 fiscal year, which is quite solid for the off-price space, even if it wasn't what the company or what analysts had hoped for. But our favorite part when we look at any earnings update, especially these year-end calls, are some of the details that come forward on the call. And One thing that we have talked about 
ad nauseum, not only in off-price, but other areas as well, is inventory. Inventory is up for TJX. And this goes back to, again, the original point about buying opportunities. However, as with Walmart, who we discussed last week, much of this added inventory is in transit. So a lot of this inventory isn't on store shelves just yet. They're hoping to kind of unclog this, so to speak, as the first quarter of this fiscal year goes on. Still, by raw numbers, value of their inventory rose from $4.9 billion at the end of fiscal 2020 to nearly $6 billion at the end of fiscal 2022. Now, as I mentioned, they're hoping to kind of unclog this in-transit issue. It's not projected to affect their spring lines. The company says the amount of available inventory out there remains robust. Their buyers are capitalizing on those opportunities, and they're hoping to clear out all of these supply chain issues as their first quarter progresses. And Leighton, this expectation really borne out in their first quarter projection is they see U.S. comps rising 1% to 3% over an already solid 17% rise last year. Part of this is fueled by what management said, very strong sales to begin February again due to just having more merchandise in stock. Yeah, really good news on this front, at least. This was after a soft January affected negatively by both in-transit inventory issues, although inventory per store was up sequentially, we should note, and a general softness in apparel driven by COVID spikes. By the way, they expect full-year comps to be up by around 3 to 4% in the U.S. versus a strong fiscal 2022. Really a product, again, of better inventory flow, but also of expectations regarding consumer spending in the U.S., which we'll talk about later in our second story. But CEO Ernie Herman said on the call that deal flow continues to be strong across all brand levels. Good, better, and best, as he put it. They were asked how much exactly of the expected comp gains will come from pricing versus unit growth. They said it will depend on division, of course, but they expect average retail to be potentially up slightly in MarMax to support any sagging unit volumes. However, at brands like Sierra, for instance, they do project unit growth all the same. Regarding those market share gains, of particular import was their note on the call itself that they gained a large number of Gen Z and millennial shoppers during the year. As we've covered in the interview segment in the recent past, it's particularly important that they draw these age groups as established buying habits come out in the pandemic. Leadership credited share gains to their ad campaigns and the mix of spend, not overly focused on digital, but hitting all channels. They plan on launching new campaigns in 2022 to continue to draw people post-pandemic into what they called new shopper landscape. They did, by the way, provide guidance as far as the new stores are concerned. They opened 75 in the U.S. in their latest fiscal year, 29 home goods locations, 11 Sierra stores fueled the expansion there. Although the guidance wasn't in their prepared release, they did note on the call that they plan to open about 170 stores enterprise-wide. This was U.S. and international. In the U.S. alone, they planned for around 55 new TJ Maxx and Marshall stores. That's for this year. 60 new home goods stores, 10 new HomeSense stores, and 20 new Sierra stores. We've seen the Sierra concept really begin to take off over the last few years and like home goods seem to benefit from the pandemic as people increasingly flock into the outdoor space. 
Their plans for home goods seem to indicate that they believe in the long-term the outlook there for durable goods, probably in part due to their share of the home goods market and how it's increased by a large enough margin here in the recent past. They project around 400 remodels, by the way, 50 relocations for the coming fiscal year as well. They really see short-term white space for around 1,600 new stores. So they're reinvesting in their current store footprint, but also, of course, continuing to expand domestically. As with Walmart's call a week ago, they mentioned that they are strategically positioned to gain share in an inflationary environment. In theory, as shoppers become more price conscious, they begin to turn to off-price stores. Historically, times of uncertainty and inflation have been good for TJX as a company. And I don't think there's any arguing that right now we're seeing times of uncertainty and times of inflation. So TJX said on the call and their leadership said in particular, hey, looking back through our history, we actually thrive in this type of environment. So they're not shying away from it. And one of the things they were asked about was the promotional environment across the entire retail landscape on the call, because they are really a business, as are most off-pricers, that are sensitive to promotions at other retailers. The more other retailers promote, the more that may drive traffic away from off-price. So leadership at TJX, obviously well-tuned to the landscape here. Herman said on the call that wage increases across the board, not only in stores, but also at DC's for the likes of e-commerce pure plays, for example, with this going on, they don't project any actual price promotion at other retailers. He said other retailers might choose to promote more. You might see coupons, you might see promotions, but that promotional price, whatever they're promoting, is going to be raised to a price level that they don't feel will impact them. But it is something to watch for across retail. And again, I think this is indicative of where we might go in 2022 in terms of promotion you might see the same amount of promotional activity in terms of doing the actual promotion, doing the actual marketing. However, you're going to see just higher levels of promoted price instead of those lower levels of promoted prices. People stop maybe looking to compete so hard on price and start to worry about their margins in an inflationary environment. talked in that first segment about TJX and leveraging different types of marketing to focus on different shopper groups. Marketing is today as complex as it has ever been. If you're in a marketing department at a retailer, you know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. There's so many different ways to market compared to what it was like 50 or 60 years ago. And I know one channel that's out there is influencer marketing. Oftentimes you see influencer marketing really being promoted, but the reality of it is a lot of CMOs, a lot of marketing groups don't necessarily like it because it's not all that measurable. And sometimes dealing with influencers can be difficult. And our partner for today's show, Hashtag Paid, understands that they're the number one rated influencer marketing platform on G2 Crowd because they don't leverage influencers they use creators, real quality content creators, and they make it very easy for you or your business to test this channel. Using their platform, you can pick your audience and objectives. You can pick from a short list of creators that is curated by hashtag paid, and then you can watch those creators 
really make magic and make you and your marketing team look like absolute geniuses and drive that brand growth. They promise that you'll never have to spend hours searching for influencers or haggling with prices or compensation, and you'll always know about performance. The best part, their platform just starts at $499, and our podcast listeners get $500 of free working spend on your first campaign. They love retail-focused podcast listeners so much that they're giving you 500 bucks to use on your first campaign. So go to go.hashtagpay.com slash retail. That's go.hashtagpaid.com slash retail to receive $500 off your first campaign. That address is in the show notes. Check them out. They're a great partner of ours. We're very appreciative of them. But Again, use creators rather than influencers. And I think it's something that a lot of businesses out there could certainly look to leverage in the future. Well, we push on with the news segment on the Retail Focus podcast. And America's appetite for footwear and athletic clothing, at least for now, appears to stay strong. Foot Locker posted a nice quarter compared to analyst estimates at least. They were able to beat on expectations of earnings per share of $1.43, posting quarterly earnings of $1.67. More than this, though, their quarter, now the quarter that just was, mind you, was indicative of continued strength in the athletic wear sector. If you've listened to the show at all in the past two years, you know that we're fairly bullish on this particular retail sector. I know, Leighton, you're a big fan of Big Five and Dick's Sporting Goods as well. I'm obviously a fan of those businesses in addition, so we've been fairly optimistic. And despite increases in direct-to-consumer sales from the major brands like Nike and Under Armour, remember that, we'll talk about it later, retailers like Foot Locker, Finish Line, Hibbit and City Gear, and Dick's and so on and so forth, they really have been providing a differentiated proposition that a lot of major general merchandisers can't match because they don't have deals with those major brands and companies. And really, these relationships with the major footwear and athleisure manufacturers, that's been the driving force behind sales, along with increased discretionary income. Both of those things were drivers for Foot Locker in the most recent quarter. But let this serve as a bit of foreshadowing. There may be potential issues with one such major brand going forward, which caught headlines and was one of many factors leading to a decidedly muddied look going forward. But Leighton, first let's talk about the slight positives for Foot Locker in terms of the quarterly numbers here. Yeah, as we dig into the numbers, you can see comp store sales edged up by 0.8%, driven by strength in apparel particularly. This was said to be helped by their launch of their new private label women's wear brand. Overall sales were up 8.2% in the quarter for the company when excluding exchange rate impacts, those pesky rate impacts there. Sales numbers increased a good deal as a result of so many new store openings and their acquisition of Atmos over the course of the year. In the recent quarter alone, though, they closed 53 net stores, mostly as a result of foot action closures. The result was the ending of the quarter and fiscal year with fewer stores than they began it, although this wasn't the case for the entirety of the year, and so you have top-line increases outpacing comps. The increased sales resulted in a beat of analyst expectations and an adjusted 
Earnings per share increase of 7.7% versus last year. On a gap basis, though, their margins took a bit of a hit as their cost of sales and selling general and administrative expenses both increased as a percent of sales. On a gap basis, earnings per share were down about 15 cents year over year. Inventories were in a strong position, which is really good for the company, up 37.2% over the end of last year's fourth quarter. Again, a really good thing, as we've talked about ad nauseum with the athletic wear sector really struggling with inventories. It is all about inventories for some of these stores, these physical stores really needing to cater to all of the customers that come in through their doors. The story coming out of the call wasn't about their past quarter, though. It was really about their looking ahead towards the rest of 2022. So rough was their look ahead. One media outlet referred to the Foot Locker call as the Hurt Locker. While Foot Locker didn't name names, they said that the beginning of the fourth quarter, 2022, no one vendor is expected to represent more than 55% of the supplier spend down from 65% in the fourth quarter of 2021. The one vendor, we have that in quotes here, named, it was pretty clear, we think, is Nike. Foot Locker placed the blame for this directly on the feet of this one vendor, noting its shift to direct to consumer as the main reason for this. However, they did also note that they expect this shift as a result of strength from their brand diversification efforts. This same one vendor was responsible for around 75% of supplier spend in 2020 for Foot Locker. As one would expect, Foot Locker attempted to spin this in a positive way, saying this change will enable them to really accelerate programs already in place to diversify their merchandise mix. These initiatives, including leaning further into apparel and strengthening partnerships outside of the big three of Nike, Adidas, and Under Armour, were really here noted, Trent, with a partnership with Reebok. Yeah, they noted a partnership with Reebok on the call, which is, of course, a subsidiary of Adidas, to offer exclusive basketball shoe lines from Shaq and Allen Iverson because apparently they're selling it to people that were NBA fans you know, 20 years ago. But their present partnership for LaMelo Ball-related Puma gear as well. And, you know, this was where I think a lot of analysts were kind of turned off on the call because Foot Locker spent so long trying to spin this into a positive, saying, hey, this will allow us to diversify. It'll allow us to focus on our exclusive platforms. And you look at the exclusive platforms, and it's not really anything that's going to drive specific large amounts of traffic like, say, a Nike or an Under Armour. One of the other things they talked about, though, on the call was their attempt to move off-mall. They plan to continue this. They seek openings of 300 locations over the next few years to power centers rather than in malls. Their recent acquisitions also play a part of kind of this reformation plan. They expect increased sales at WSS and Atmos, which Leighton mentioned earlier. Both of these businesses were onboarded during 2021. Other things they mentioned were very generic. They included, and I quote, omni-channel efforts. And I thought to myself, this isn't 2014. No one's fooled by just saying, oh yeah, we're going to do more omni-channel stuff and expecting larger sales. Really the question here is, why haven't efforts been funneled towards omni-channel, effective omni-channel to this point as nearly every retailer has focused on that in a massive way. They also talked about a cost savings program, which, as we know, is a generic term for likely downsizing their workforce 
and closing further locations. So that brings us to their 2022 outlook, which was not good. They expect decreased sales of 4 to 6% on the top line. Decreased comps look even worse from 8 to 10%. Net closures they expect as well, or at least a decrease in selling square footage. This compares negatively to really their closest comp in Hibbit. Hibbit doesn't exactly focus on the same areas as does Foot Locker, but similar merchandise mix. Hibbit a little bit more in terms of sporting goods, similar size stores. Hibbit expects sales to be roughly flat in the year ahead, and they didn't mention any of these same challenges with Nike, which is likely owing to their more diverse merchandise base. And as I said, they are pretty sporting goods oriented as well as just the shoes and the athletic wear. Dick's, meanwhile, just foreshadowing here, they're going to provide their fourth quarter numbers and their year ahead outlook on March 8th. But again, this is a retailer in terms of Dick's that saw the writing on the wall. They saw this train coming several years ago and they attempted to diversify in as many ways as possible while still catering to their core customer. And in all, I think you could argue that this is a good thing long-term that Fort Locker's got to be forced to diversify their supplier mix. When you talk about getting 75% of your merchandise from one supplier or merchandise spend, I guess, from one supplier a couple of years ago, that's going to still bring short-term pain as they back off from that number. Their focus now really needs to be on retaining as many customers as possible while they transition and while they attempt to roll out private labels. You know, sneakerheads aren't exactly clamoring for the generic version of a Nike shoe. So that focus on clothing has got to be amplified for future success. And again, you can't blame Foot Locker for going with what worked a couple of years ago as they were the story of retail in certain circles for having successful sales, for catering to sneakerheads, for catering to athleisure wear. But long term, you also have to wonder about the strategy for Nike as well. But I would argue that Foot Locker needs brands like Nike, like Under Armour, more than brands need Foot Locker in 2022. And Foot Locker also, you look at their markets, they're in a lot of markets with concurrent Nike corporate stores. So that doesn't serve them quite as well either. When you look at the likes of, let's say, uh, Hibbit, for example, they tend to populate a lot smaller markets. So Nike views those as maybe outposts. It's valuable to have their products in stores in some of those markets that Hibbit takes up. So overall, a difficult year ahead, it seems like, for Foot Locker. And I do think that this is not just them sandbagging. I do think there are some rough days ahead for the company. Many analysts seem to feel the same way, but we'll be looking ahead to that Dick's earnings call outlook on March 8th for more information. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Well, we've reached the final segment of the Retail Focus podcast, the Looking Ahead segment. And, you know, we would be remiss. There's so much news and information going on in the retail world, just not enough time to cover it all, but a couple of things I wanted to shout out. Etsy sales remain strong. They had their earnings call this past week. Things looking good there. Bath and Body Works CEO Andrew Meslow announced he's stepping aside for health reasons to be succeeded on an interim basis by Sarah Nash. 
Now, Sarah Nash, obviously very capable hands there at Bath and Body Works, but we certainly wish Andrew Meslow all the best as he tends to those health issues. Bath and Body Works, as I mentioned kind of in the introduction, they did beat on earnings this past call. And then there was kind of an intriguing retail story as well out of Arkansas as a family dollar distribution center was at least seen to have a number of rodents in it, so many that it forced the closure of several family dollar stores that were getting products from that distribution center. So just a jam-packed week in retail and unfortunate that we couldn't get to it all. But of course, Layton does a great job updating our Twitter feed by retweeting some of those most recent stories. Now, Layton, one of the things that our listeners should know about this episode, and I'm surprised you're even on this episode, you should be jet lagged. You were on the East Coast, not but a few hours ago. You're on the West Coast now, but you were visiting the New York City metro area. And I think it's interesting because a news story came out this week from Alabama noting that Kmart is down to only four stores and you had the pleasure of visiting one of the four remaining Kmart stores while you were in the New York metro area. So I'll turn it over to you in terms of your looking ahead story, which features, again, one of America's favorite retailers maybe 30 years ago, not so much anymore. Yeah, that's right. Maybe one of the last times we get the opportunity to talk about our beloved Kmart on the podcast I did, to your point, have an opportunity to visit one of the last four stores. There are currently six. There's one in Montana and one in Florida that are closing in the next two weeks. Uh, I believe you've visited the one in Montana. The opportunity that I had was to visit the store in Westwood, New Jersey. It is your prototypical 1960s and 1970s model of a Kmart. So it's a standalone store with a shopping center adjacent to it. It's a beautiful, well-stocked Kmart, which, you know, is kind of funny because they don't really exist anymore. A lot of the stores that had closed here in the last couple of years were only maybe 50 or 60% occupied with inventory. And the employees, you could tell, had very low morale. This particular store, again, very good area. I believe it was a store that's around 45 years old and is still serving that area for local goods. And Trent, I not being really that used to the cold weather, ended up buying some things there and saving the receipts so that we can keep them and hoard them for perpetuity. But yes, to your point as well, there are four stores remaining in the US. One is in Miami, Florida. The other two are going to be in New Jersey. And then one last one in Long Island in New York. And the stores all look to be healthy right now in terms of inventory levels, but uh, the company has been, of course, selling off locations or strategically redeveloping locations. A lot of the stores you'll see developed into raw stores and other off-price stores or just shutting down entirely and not being redeveloped. So it was a fun trip. It was a fun trip. Maybe potentially the last Kmart I'll get to see in person, though I do want to see the Miami, Florida location. Again, these are all those conventional prototype locations that are remaining in the U.S. Yeah, and you're right regarding the Montana location. It's a shame that that is closing. It was a smaller square footage location, and you really wonder 
what that's going to be redeveloped under. And I, you and I both noted that the Kmart in Marshall, Michigan that recently closed, as well as the Hamilton Kmart, Hamilton, Montana Kmart, that is, those shopping centers were listed for sale on commercial real estate websites. So you wonder if maybe they found takers there, if they found avenues to redevelopment there. But again, that's part of the looking ahead here is what's going to happen to those final four Kmarts and will they continue to exist in some way, shape or form or will Kmart exit with a whimper, which is what I think a lot of people expect. Well, my looking ahead story is towards an e-commerce pure play that was somewhat successful last year during the middle of the pandemic, but has seen their success wane this year as people return to stores. I'm talking about Wayfair here. Not only was Wayfair not profitable this past quarter, not only did they miss analyst expectations, but in their earnings call this past week, they forecasted softer online sales going forward as people returned to stores. And I think this is a story worth keeping an eye on because Wayfair was really kind of the darling of the retail world a few years ago. Maybe not so much financially, but a lot of people were talking about Wayfair as an e-commerce pure play really up there with not so much Amazon, but several others. And I think now you've seen other online concepts like, for example, Chewy.com differentiate from Wayfair because you see a path to profitability for Chewy.com, whereas you really don't for Wayfair. And you wonder if they can't be profitable during the course of the pandemic, if they can't be profitable when all of these home goods stores are closed, how will they ever be profitable? And honestly, the earnings call was a little bit depressing. They talked about issues regarding supply chain. They talked about issues in terms of slowness in processing orders. They talked about even the fact that Home Depot and Lowe's fared better than they did during the course of the last year due to the fact that they have more robust logistics and supply chains. So if they don't work as an e-com pure play, then, then what will really in this space? And I think this is something that you have the likes of TJX, of course, opening more home goods locations, but I think a lot of people in terms of home furnishings are taking note of. We've talked a little bit about the discretionary income being there, but also that people have pretty much saturated their homes with most of the purchases. We've talked about Lowe's expecting maybe tailing off sales during the course of 2022 as people have already put in money and an investment into their homes. So I think this is interesting going forward. If Wayfair wasn't able to execute during this past year, they're trying to put money back into their supply chain. They're trying to put money back into their organization to turn things around. But again, just don't see a way to profitability. Now, it's great. And they did mention on the call the fact that overall, their net revenue was 50% greater in 2021 than it was in 2019. And I get trying to paint a pretty picture there, but overall, orders delivered in their fourth quarter were down 26.7% year over year. So you combine falling top line revenue, falling order generation, and falling profitability seems to be a potential issue for Wayfair. And I, I think the way out of this might be in terms of an acquisition. So keeping a close eye on Wayfair over the year ahead as it could be just like we talked about with Foot Locker, maybe a painful year for them. Well, we thank all of you for sticking around with us during the course of this podcast. Thank Leighton also for taking the time after his flight back from the East Coast today to hop on the podcast with us. Coming up next week, Leighton won't be joining us, but we'll have a 
interview guest for sure, at least one. We've got three scheduled for this next week, so not sure who will slot next week, but a lot of great interview guests coming up, so we hope you'll join us. Then a big thanks to our sponsor, Hashtag Paid, for bringing you this show, and we'll see you again seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.